Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of your word. We're thankful for this ministry that you gave to Jude, this special word that you gave him for your people at that time, a word that has been preserved for us in the Bible, a word that we get to read and study and hear again today. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and that you would speak to us clearly through Jude's little letter here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we embark on a, on a new journey into the last of the little letters that we are um, studying in our series, the book of Jude. We call it a book, but of course, it's really just a letter and a, and a short one at that, packed with incredible uh, details and rich images, but it's a, a little letter tucked in there right before the book of Revelation. Now, although Jude was born and raised in the same home as Jesus Christ himself, it's clear that neither Jude nor any of his brothers and sisters believed Jesus to be the Messiah while he was alive. And yet clearly something changed dramatically for all of them, and especially for Jude, after witnessing the resurrection and the ascension, because we read at the beginning of Acts that they're all there in the upper room in Jerusalem with the other uh, disciples, praying together. It's incredible. Not long after that, Jude's brother James becomes, rises to this position of authority as the, the head of the church in Jerusalem, ends up being one of the first martyrs for the faith. And based on the presence of this little letter, it would appear that Jude also held a position of some authority in the early church, although we don't know exactly what that looked like. Now, the main point of this letter is actually quite straightforward. If you look at verse 3 here, Jude tells his readers right up front, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's his main purpose for writing this letter. And my, Pastor Michael will unpack this part of the letter in more detail next week as he gets into the verses at the end of the book. But in verse 4, we see the reason why Jude feels he needs to bring this word of exhortation to his readers at this precise moment. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, certain ungodly people have infiltrated the church and they're seeking to pervert the grace of God. This is why Jude feels compelled to write, and the topic takes up most of the rest of his letter. So here, therefore, is the main thrust of our sermon today, covering verses 1 through 16. Jude's extended critique, detailed critique of the ungodly, deceptive, and immoral lives of the false teachers should lead us to lead us to in turn embrace the authority of God, of Christ our Lord, in every aspect of our lives. Now the first way that you can do this is simply to pursue personal holiness. Now I'm guessing if you're surveying a crowd of people trying to assess their felt needs, personal holiness is not going to drift very high up on that list. You're going to hear marriage or parenting or finances, career decisions, figuring out what God will for my life. These all seem to be far more pressing concerns. And yet the Bible talks extensively about the need for personal 
holiness. For it is the most obvious and practical way by which we demonstrate our uh, submission to the absolute authority of Christ. In fact, I would argue that until we get this straight, our personal holiness, we will always struggle to answer those other day-to-day questions about marriage and parenting and finances and everything else. Now, turning to the text, Jude uses the, the presence or the absence of personal holiness as a barometer to gauge the, the faith or lack thereof of these, these false teachers, these libertines who are, who are infiltrating the church. For example, in verses uh, 5 through 7, Jude gives three examples of rebellion and judgment from the Old Testament. And then in verses 8 through 10, he explains and and applies these examples to the false teachers. So let's take uh, a closer look here at verse 5. The first example Jude gives comes from Exodus. He says that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt, but then destroyed those who did not believe. He's almost certainly talking about the passage in, in Numbers 32, Numbers chapter 32, where the people are standing right on the edge of the promised land, poised to go in. God tells them, go into the land. And they back away. They essentially chicken out at the last minute. Consumed with fear, they fail to follow God's direct command. And their punishment as a result is death, right? God says, this entire generation will now wander in the desert until every one of them has died. The lesson being, do not presume on God's grace, the grace that drew the people out of, uh, of Egypt. They presumed on that grace and they suffered the consequences as a result. Now, the second example he gives in verse 6 is a little... It's a little less clear to us. I mean, it could simply be a reference to the time when when the angels fell from heaven in rebellion against God. But in this case, it's more likely to be a reference to the passage in Genesis 6 that talks about the sons of God and the daughters of man. Kind of an odd passage, but at the time when Jude was writing, almost everyone believed that the sons of God, that phrase, the sons of God in, in Genesis 6, actually referred to angels who sinned by taking human wives, uh, human women as their wives. I know that is a disturbing thought. That's the point. It is a disturbing thing that happened. This was both an act of outright rebellion against God and also a demonstration of sexual immorality on so many levels flouting the boundaries God had established for his creation and acting as a tipping point uh, that leads to the flood. Now, the third example in verse 7 is well-known throughout the Bible concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. As the text says, the people not only engaged in sexual immorality, most notably homosexuality, but also pursued unnatural desire which is perhaps a reference to the fact that the men of the town attempt to uh, lie with the angels who have come to rescue Lot, which is a reverse of the situation we have in Genesis 6. Genesis 6, the angels coming and seeking human wives, and here we have humans seeking uh, to lie with angels. Such rebellion, of course, is followed by judgment from God, The cities are burned to the ground in which 
in a way uh, that Jude refers to eternal fire. Jude then expands and applies these examples to the false teachers in the church. He says these, these people defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. In other words, they have fallen prey to the exact same kinds of sins as the rebellious, grumbling Israelites in the desert, the proud, lustful, fallen angels of Genesis 6, and the sexually immoral people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want to ever be put on the same team as all these folks, right? This is like the fantasy football team of bad guys, the, the absolute opposite of the Justice League. Now, the next verse is challenging. Verse 9 describes a scene where the archangel Michael and the devil are arguing over the body of Moses, a scene which none of you are going to find in your Bibles. So where does it come from? This was a popular story that had actually been around for quite some time before, uh, before Jude wrote his letter. It wasn't ever considered to be part of the canon of Scripture, uh, but since Moses was such an important figure in their history, the story was a popular one nonetheless. And essentially the story went that, that uh, after Moses died on Mount Nebo, right, the archangel Michael was sent to take care of the body. However, the devil interrupted him, claiming that he had no right to do that. He says, look, Moses was a murderer. He belongs to me now. However, in the dispute, according to this uh, story that had developed, Michael never challenged the uh, devil directly, but instead pointed him to God and said, may the Lord rebuke you. So how should we treat this story? Well, first, the story could in fact be true. And it could be the case that God gave Jude this special insight. Now, even so, just because Jude makes a reference to this particular story, it doesn't mean that other apocryphal books and material are inspired and authoritative at all. Which leads to the second point. Jude never himself calls this story Scripture. And he never declares it to be authoritative. In fact, we don't even know for sure if Jude thought this was true history or just an embellished story, an example that he's giving. Third, Scripture uses lots of illustrations, metaphors, images, parables, many of which are not, strictly speaking, historical fact, right? And that could easily be the case here. Because ultimately, Jude is trying to make a point about the false teachers not Moses and the archangel Michael. So I don't want you to get too distracted by the strangeness of the text and then lose sight of the main thrust of the passage. So what is the main thrust of this passage? Well, I've always struggled to make sense of this personally, but just this week I gained new insight from reading a commentary by a theologian named Richard Bauckham. And he argues, and, and this was very helpful for me, he said this scene is really not about Michael showing deference or humility or respect to the devil, which, after all, wouldn't make much sense. We're talking about the devil here. I'm not worried about showing deference or humility or respect to him. 
Rather, this scene is focused on Michael showing deference and humility and respect to God. And this is why Jude chose this story. The false teachers are ones who have rejected all external authority and they act with total libertarian freedom. They believe themselves to be bound by no one, not even God himself. But the archangel Michael stands as a striking contrast to such an arrogant and rebellious spirit. He had every right and opportunity to directly engage with the devil. I mean, moreover, this Michael's not just any old angel. He's perhaps the greatest of all the angels, and yet he still recognized his position as serving a king mightier than him. He embraced the authority of God, even in the middle of a heated and difficult situation. And I think that's the primary point of comparison Jude's trying to make. If even the archangel Michael embraces the authority of God and resists the personal uh, temptation to overstep his boundaries and act for himself, then how much more so should we also willingly, eagerly embrace the authority of Christ in our lives and refuse to overstep the boundaries, the God-given boundaries that he has set up for us to follow? So do your actions reveal a heart that is submissive in this way to God's authority? I mean, that's easy enough to affirm in times and places when, when there's nothing really challenging us, right? Everything's straightforward. Obedience doesn't cost anything. But what about when temptation is shoved right under your nose? When it's something you want with every fiber of your being? When it's something you feel you deserve, something you've earned, maybe even something deep down, if you were really honest, you would have to admit, I think God is keeping this from me. But what about when it seems like God isn't moving fast enough or clearly enough? How do you respond? How will you respond? Love for God is reflected, practically speaking, in a life of personal holiness, not personal perfection. None of us can attain that. But the honest pursuit of a life that is pleasing to God in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, a life that is quick to move to confession and repentance over and over again, every time you get off track, eager to get back up again in the power of the Spirit when you inevitably stumble and fall. So learn from the examples that Jude gives and pursue personal holiness. Now, the second way that you can embrace the authority of Christ in your life is, is to shepherd the people around you. You know, one of Satan's greatest deceits is tricking us into thinking that sin is something that is merely it's personal, it's private, it only impacts myself. But Jude makes it clear in this next section, that's not the case at all. The people sneaking into the church are leading others towards a precipice, and they must be stopped before it's too late. Jude starts this new section by pronouncing a woe on these people, uh, followed by three more examples from the Old Testament. So first, Jude says that these people walked in the way of Cain. Cain, of course, committed the first murder in the Bible. 
Think about it. If the, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then second is like it's to love your neighbor as yourself. He violated both of these, rejecting God and literally killing his brother. But it gets worse. I, I read in a, another commentary this week, there was a popular book at the time of Jude called The Jerusalem Targum. And in this fictional paraphrase of Genesis, which was very popular reading at the time when Jude was writing, it says this, There is no judgment. These are the words coming from Cain. There is no judgment, no judge, no future life, no reward will be given to the righteous, and no judgment will be imposed on the wicked. It's not the word of God, but it was the way that Cain was perceived by Jude's audience at that time. Total rebellion. Uh, The first atheist... The Jewish historian Josephus goes one step further. He uh, says he, meaning Cain, excited his acquaintances, the people around him, to procure pleasures and spoils by robbery, and he became a great leader of people, where? Into wicked courses. So not content to sin for himself, he then led others to do likewise. And now, Jude says, these false teachers are acting in the same manner, not content to merely reject the law for themselves personally. They are now encouraging others to do likewise. Rather than model their lives on Christ, they have embraced the murderous, anger-fueled, atheistic path of Cain. Surely, you may be thinking, surely it's not that bad anymore. And I hope not. But the Bible is clear that anger, lust, greed, covetousness, they all begin their lives as as quiet, tiny little seeds embedded in our hearts, waiting to grow and spread like a cancer that will eventually consume us. So don't let anger and covetousness consume you. Turn back before it is too late. A second, Jude says, these people have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Now, according to the book of Numbers, as the Israelites drew near to the promised land, Balak, king of Moab, paid Balaam to issue a formal curse against God's people. All right, this will keep them at bay. I'll hire a prophet to curse them. And there's this whole scene with the talking donkey and the angel and everything else. And in the end, Balaam doesn't curse God's people. He pronounces a blessing instead. But honestly, it's kind of clear from the text. This is not really Balaam's inherent righteous desire to bless God's people. This is about God's direct intervention and his gracious provision for his people and his faithfulness to his promises to rescue them and lead them into the promised land. In fact, later in the book of Numbers, Balaam successfully lures the Israelites into all kinds of sexual immorality and idolatry, and he is killed eventually by the Israelites as a result. Jude says the false teachers are walking down this exact same path driven along by personal greed and attempting to lead others into sexual immorality. And we don't know what exactly that looked like for Jude and the people he's writing to, but we sadly see this still today, even in the church. But perhaps the more dangerous threat comes from leaders who may never commit idolatry 
or embezzle funds. The more dangerous threat comes from those who are leading others astray in other ways, exercising their leadership in ways that turn people away from God. The most obvious example being the growing numbers of churches and pastors who continue to affirm and embrace homosexuality as being acceptable to God. This is what it looks like to abandon yourself for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, rejecting God, rejecting his holy standard, clearly defined for us in Scripture, in order to fit in, in order to gain the approval, for the gain of the approval of the surrounding culture. Such a strategy will undoubtedly win all kinds of friends and approval and popularity in the short term. But in the long run, can only lead to destruction. If you think that sounds harsh, look at the third example Jude uses from the Old Testament, Kara's Rebellion. This is a reference to the account in Numbers 16, where Korah not only rejected the authority of Moses and Aaron, but also led another 250 people to do the same. And the result was destruction. Literally, the ground opens up, it swallows them whole. Fire goes out and consumes the rest. A stark reminder that God's holiness is not to be taken lightly. Now Jude then ends this section with a pile of metaphors. Like they just, he just gets on this incredible roll, rich, evocative imagery meant to convey the danger and disaster that these licentious libertines arouse wherever they go. So first, he says, Jude's opponents are described as, as hidden reefs at their love feasts. The love feasts, uh, that's, uh, this is what we do every week. Our fellowship meal, it's, a, it's what they would call a love feast. Except for them, they, at the time of Jude, that would also be the time when they would share communion. The Lord's Supper is part of their fellowship meal. A time of prayer and worship. Not just eating stuff in their faces, but a time of communion as brothers and sisters in Christ with, with a holy God. And the false teachers shipwrecked that entire idea. Second, Jude calls them greedy shepherds, failed leaders who cared more about feeding themselves and tending to the needs of the flock. Men who enjoyed the perks of being in a position of power and authority, but lacking true concern and compassion for the people whose lives were entrusted to their care. Third, he says they were like waterless clouds and fruitless trees, two different images conveying pretty much the same thing, over-promising, under-delivering. And so much progressive theology today does exactly the same thing, promising some kind of new, more acceptable, more tolerant, more ecumenical way forward that allows more people to approach God more freely. But such a way of thinking always under-delivers, undermining orthodox faith and practice, ultimately just leaving people further entrapped in sin and further away from the grace of God than they were before. The recent conference, you may have seen this on social media, the recent conference by Andy Stanley is a perfect example of this. 
build as an opportunity to, to help parents minister with, uh, to, to LGBTQ students better, but essentially just an attempt to further mainstream and affirm homosexuality within the church. Now, fourth, these false teachers are described as being like wild waves casting up their foam upon their, of their own shame. So he says, on the one hand, these false teachers, they're like, they're like waterless clouds drifting through the air, never providing rain, and they're like, they're like trees that promise fruit and never provide anything. But on the other hand, he says, what they do cough up is garbage, a foamy mire, a blot and blemish on the shoreline. I think of all the, the sargassum seaweed that's been piling up on beaches this summer down in Mexico and Florida. Mountains of dark green, brown, soggy seaweed rotting on the beach in the heat of summer, attracting flies and driving away tourists. That's the only kind of fruit these false teachers are bringing into their churches and offering to their people. Finally, Jude compares them to wandering stars, perhaps referencing shooting stars or maybe the seemingly erratic movement of planets through, through the, uh, the sky. But the point being, they refuse to stay in their allotted place but transgress all God-given boundaries in search of something better. And it doesn't take much imagination to think of the myriad ways people today are looking to reject God's boundaries and wander off onto whatever path they want to choose for themselves, even within the church. So how should we respond to such evil? Look, not everyone is called to be a pastor, but you all have a role in shepherding the people around you. You're leading, all of you, in some way or another, work at home, in your friendships, in your extended family, in your communities. In this way, you've all been given some kind of flock that you can shepherd. Kids, even you, listen up. Look, your siblings watch everything that you're doing. Everything. How you talk how you act, how you interact with others, with your, how you uh, treat your parents. In fact, I would argue probably your siblings know more about you and what really goes on in your life than maybe your parents even do. Which means you have a significant influence in their lives. How are you going to use that influence? Where and how are you leading your brother's and your sisters. Think of all the images that Jude uses right here in the text. If the false teachers are like hidden reefs waiting to shipwreck those around them, how can you be more like a lighthouse instead, guiding people to safety, pointing them to truth? If the false teachers are like, are like waterless clouds promising rain but delivering little more than some passing shade, then how can you be a source of refreshment and hope to those around you. More importantly, how can you be leading others to the source of living water to find their hope, strength, joy, motivation, meaning, and purpose in Jesus? 
How can you point people to the cleansing waters of Christ where they can be set free from the, the guilt and shame? You know, Pastor Michael spoke at length last week about the, the need for discipleship relationships in our lives. And this passage is just another example of why we need positive role models in our lives. Men and women, brothers and sisters, who can poke and prod and help us cling tightly to the faith that's been handed down to us as we seek to become more and more like Jesus. Now the third and the final way that you can embrace the authority of Christ is to live in light of God's coming judgment. Now there's one final section of our text which we we have to address, and that comes in verses 14 through 16. Now, Jude has already alluded multiple times to God's coming judgment. But here he brings it up one more time with a fearsome intensity. He says, it was about, the, um, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The end is coming. That's what Jude says. God's judgment on the ungodly and all their ungodly acts of ungodliness is certain. But I'm guessing at this point you're wondering what in the world is this prophecy of Enoch all about. Right? Enoch is famous because according to Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and then he was not because God took him. So it's not surprising with a statement like that that all kinds of stories and myths and legends and other material grew up around Enoch. Who was this guy? What does it mean to walk with God and then he was not? And the result was, among other things, a long collection of material that came to be known as First Enoch. Now, although that's one book, it was actually written over a period of several hundred years starting before Jesus was born and then extending through. People kept adding to it until long after Jesus, uh, the resurrection and ascension. Now, this book was never included in any canon of Scripture, not Jewish, not Roman Catholic, not Protestant. It's nowhere. As far as we can tell, it's unlikely anyone ever considered it to be inspired by God or authoritative in the same way as our other books of the Bible. And yet, here we have Jude quoting it in a way that would seem to convey some degree of authority. So how do we explain this? Well, much of what I said earlier about the story concerning the devil and the archangel Michael uh, arguing and debating over the body of Moses applies here also. First, this prophecy could theoretically be true, even if every single other word in the book of First Enoch is false and made up. This part could be true. If Jude's letter is inspired scripture, then it is possible that God gave Jude special insight 
concerning this prophecy of Enoch. Having said that, New Testament authors did have a very specific way of quoting Old Testament Scripture, a way something Jude doesn't do here. So it's unlikely, I think, that Jude considered First Enoch to be inspired and authoritative. But whatever you think about the source of the quote, the content, the message here is entirely consistent with everything else we know from Scripture. Right? Jude captures thoughts already deeply embedded in the Old Testament concerning God's overwhelming glory, the, the, the imminent return of Christ and the final judgment for the ungodly. So even if First Enoch was largely made up, this particular quote captures information about God and the future judgment that is absolutely true and accurate. All sin must be eradicated. That's a consistent theme in the Bible from the very beginning through uh, Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden to the flood, to the exile, to the reason for the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then the terrifying images in Revelation. God's holiness will prevail over all darkness and sin, and the only way through such fearsome and inevitable fiery judgment is by the blood of the Lamb. You know, the reality of God's coming judgment, it should make us squirm in our seats. Like, we should be uncomfortable talking about this. If you don't like all this talk of death and destruction and, and judgment and punishment, that's good. You shouldn't take any of this lightly. It is horrifying to consider. And there should never be any feelings of smugness like, well, thank goodness I'm in, even though all the rest of them are out. We're talking about eternal separation from the source of life, from God himself. It should motivate us to evangelism, to spur us into action personally and corporately. Have you ever seen uh, in the airport, the, the, the airport lounges? I'm not talking about like the cheap plastic seats where we all crammed in right by the gates. I mean like the fancy lounges behind the sliding glass doors. And there's, I think there's like leather chairs and, and all this nice stuff in there. And they have receptionists guarding the entrance. And sometimes I think we conceive of Christianity like we've been given access to one of those lounges. Like once we were lost in the noisy chaos of the airport, but then Jesus gave us entrance into this amazing lounge where we can relax on those nice chairs, munching on appetizers, enjoying a life separated from the masses, relaxing in luxury, waiting for the day when Jesus will fly us away home. But sit with Jude for just a little while. The reality of the coming judgment of God with his thousands upon thousands of angels, God coming in all his glory to judge the ungodly, that should drive each and every one of us up out of our easy chairs and out into the harvest that's waiting. Were it not for Christ's intervention, you and I would be counted among these ungodly that Jude lists here. 
Praise the Lord for the new life that we have now in his name. But let us not be content to just sit and savor that salvation for ourselves. Jude opens his letter. He says, I I, I encourage you, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's just a fancy way of saying, get up and fight. Not for cultural power, not for political victory, but for the cause of Christ and his gospel. We should be fighting for the souls of those around us. Personally, in our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, communities. Look, false teachers are actively working against God, actively seeking to stop the kingdom from advancing, actively working to draw as many people as possible away from the only true source of life and hope in this world. How can we stand against that flood? First, pursue personal holiness. What you do with your body, it matters. And it's one of the clearest and simplest ways to demonstrate your love for God. Second, display your love for others by helping them to grow in their faith and bear fruit for Christ. You are constantly being discipled by the voices of those people around you. You are constantly discipling others with the way you live your life. So what voices are shaping your faith? And how are you shaping the faith of those around you? And third, don't set your spiritual life on cruise control. The Lord has delayed his return as a grace while waiting for more sinners to repent. So you should use what little time you have left wisely, knowing that he could return at any minute. So the message from Jude for us today is to contend for the faith handed down to you. Embrace the authority of Christ and don't let up. Don't let up for one minute until he ushers you into glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, we stand here today convicted by this word from Jude. Lord, in awe of his, his insight, both into the wickedness and depravity of the world out there, the darkness also that lurks in our own hearts, the laziness, the deceitfulness, the seeds of sin that, that look to bear ungodly fruit. And we pray that you would help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to resist that temptation, to stand firm in our faith and to embrace your authority in every part of our lives. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.